Yo, what is going on? My name is Hartzell. Before we get going, you know how we do on Tuesdays. Taking back America, reclaiming that radical, progressive history of America. We got a dope playbook. I think we should use that thing. It's pretty good. Professor K, he is out this week, so let's play, shall we? Let's play progressively. Ooh, that's pretty good. Let's hit play on this. Bayard Rustin, an influence of MLK and so, so many radicals of the 50s and 60s. Bayard Rustin, on your KC Morning Show. I'll be right back. If you can't get a decent salary for men who are working, in the name of God, how the hell are you going to get rid of poverty? <laughs> All of the country people are telling me, you can't depend on the unions. They're anti-Negro. They won't stand with you. Well, I think the record here shows that in Memphis, this fight is going to be won because the black people of this community and the trade unions Stand together, man to man. We call for a non-violent uprising with people sitting, standing, being arrested, white and black together. Our power is in our ability to make things unworkable. The only weapon we have is our bodies. And we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. Am I supposed to go back to Harlem and tell the people they have to wait until the Vietnam War is over before money can be got? No, well, I think we have to put up a political fight for it. Well, I do that. not believe the war in Vietnam is more important than eradicating poverty, and I think history will reveal that. What I want to know is, with what politician will you agree in November if they don't get off their fannies and do something. Bayard Rustin on your KC Morning Show. My name is Hartzell. Happy Tuesdays. Yes, Tuesdays we take back America. It's essentially your socialist hour. Myself and Professor Harvey K., the Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Professor K. traveling the country as always. I don't even know where he's at this time. I don't even know where he is today. <laughs> That man is everywhere, including on the Left Reckoning podcast, one of my favorites, David Griscom, Matt Leck, host of the Left Reckoning podcast. One of my favorite shirts is from Left Reckoning. It's got Bernie Sanders and Willie Nelson on it. I mean, what else do you need? Professor K was on a few months ago, and the title was History from the Bottom Up. They were talking about Professor K's seminal work, the British Marxist Historians which has been re-released out now through Verso Books. This was an excellent conversation. Professor K and myself back with you next week. Let's take back America. Back in your feeds tomorrow. It's a good day to be a Kansas City. And yeah, ooh, yes, it is. We will see you in the morning. They are unanimous in their hate for me. And I welcome their hate. The KC Morning Show. On July 4th, 
January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Welcome back, everyone. David here, joined as always by my good friend, Matt. Thanks so much for being here, Matt. Howdy. And, and we're very honored to be joined by our good friend, uh, teacher, uh, TMBS Forever Crew, author of many books, um, Harvey J.K. How are you doing, friend? I'm, I'm doing great. It's, it's good to see your faces. It, it really has been a while, you know. Um, it's, 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 I been... guess I had to bring out a book, uh, even if it was an old book brought back <laughs> and new, to, to get to see you guys. <laughs> Well, you're welcome anytime. I mean, we always love love having you on. But we do have a special occasion, and uh, it's this right here. We have a reprint of uh, Harvey's book, uh, The British Marxist Historians, out now from Zero Books. Y'all should definitely um, pick it up. And I mean, there's a lot I think we can get to um, with this with this text. I know you've sent me some of the many, many different versions of this book. I mean, it's made a big impact, and I'm really excited for it to be able to you know be re-reaching people. Um, at, at bookstores across the country right now, but I can't remember. I, I know one evening when I came into the studio for, you know, TMBS, you know, the Majority Report studio for TMBS. Mm -hmm. I did give one of you maybe a copy. Did one of you get a copy of the British Marxist Historians? It was a, the Education of Desire. I got a copy of Pain, I believe. Oh, I have uh, a copy of Pain, Pain too. Oh, okay, because um, you know the first edition. Of the British Marxist Historians came out in the winter of 84, 85. And then in 96, when the book was after several printings, um, the pr one press sold it to another press, to Macmillan in the UK. In fact, it's funny, all three times it was British publishers. Not Maybe that's not mm -hmm. too surprising. And then a few years ago, um, Macmillan was letting it, was about to let it go. And that's when I, I got in, I was in a conversation with Doug Lane, the then North American mm -hmm. publisher, really, of Zero Books. And I will say, just so people understand, it's not simply a reprint, okay? The second edition had a lengthy preface and the forward by Hobsbawm, which I was honored he was he was willing to do it. And then the new edition has a kind of, you know, a few pages of, of memoir, recollection of times that I, I, I spent with three out of, four, no, four of the historians I talk about. And hopefully the, the stories I recall will drive home the question of class struggle. That's mm -hmm. all. Okay. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, one, it's a fascinating subject and, you know, the, the stories that you write about are, are really, you know, huge intellectual titans, but I think even for somebody, you know, who might not be, you know, historian by, by trade or anything like that, I think it's a really great, like, introduction or you know opening up for people to think about history uh, like as a as a profession and also for how it fits into our our movements and i think that's a good way to um to jump into this because i've heard you tell this story before um you know how did you come to the the british marxist historians right because this wasn't your your field of study no not at all and i'll start off by saying very clearly and i'm going to keep this 
version a little short since you guys have heard it before. Um, so I trained in Latin American studies and I was, I was always, you know, a progressive, though the term back in those days was liberal, which actually carried some weight, you might say, mm -hmm. back in those days. And with a, with a decidedly kind of social democratic inclinations. But when I was a grad student over in England and I had a, 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 a lecturer, a tutor, we had seminars in grad school. He really, he would say, he said to me, you know, you know more about Latin America than any of our British students do, but you're not asking the right questions. And um, he, he posed a question for me, which really raised the question of class in my mind. And I'm sure that was the, the sort of push all the further to the left. Anyhow, when I came back to the States and I eventually went on to do a PhD, I went from, I always joke about it, LSE to LSU. Um, <laughs> when I was down in Louisiana, I found, not even just among the faculty there, but most American historians, social scientists back in the early 80s, just weren't asking the kinds of questions that this young, decidedly left academic over in Britain was asking. And I was really, really frustrated. My, my mentor was a good guy at LSU, but Marx was not his thing. And I remember going off campus and I started reading these books by Eugene Genovese on slavery, looking for some kind of model for how I could ask questions about landlords and peasants, mm -hmm. relations of exploitation and oppression, and the struggles that emanate from those relations. And I, I ended up reading like his first book, The Political Economy of Slavery, then his next, The World the Slaveholders Made, and I guess the next one was the big massive role, Jordan Roll, and it really did move me. And I contacted Genovese, and he said to me, whatever you're reading in social science, forget it. Okay, that was our start. And actually, frankly, don't bother to read anyone other than the British Marxist historians. I, I have the letter here somewhere. It was that kind of thing. He actually mentioned the names I should. And the names rang a bell because I had encountered them in some fashion, especially Hobsbawm um, as an undergraduate at Rutgers in New Jersey. And reading them, you know, it it really articulated for me the kinds of things that were, I won't use the word latent in my mind, but that were present in my thinking, but they, they showed the way in which you could read the past, and in that sense, the present as well, and make far smarter sense of it if mm. you understand that the classic model that was being propagated even by people who called themselves Marxists of you know, you have class and you have class consciousness, then you have class struggle was just all wrong. Okay. It was that, and I, and I, I don't mean to antagonize you, David, because I know you've had this fascination for Althusser, but the problem in the seventies, especially was that the structuralists were so loud mm -hmm. and so present that really history itself was being marginalized and the dynamism of experience and struggle. You can't talk about struggle if it's structure. You have to be also talking about agency. I, I mean, that's sociological talk right now. But the point is to really understand the dynamism of what we would think of struggles and politics, you really have to see it through the course of time. And that's the only way really, I think, that, that they taught me to understand the significance of class struggle and how to recognize it and understand its impact. That, that's just, you know. So it was really because of Genovese, who, by the way, late in life became very conservative politically. Mm. I'm not sure he ever rejected the fundamentals of Marx, but he wrapped it in a decidedly Catholic conservative kind of fashion. 
So this is fascinating. The, the, the Catholic angle is always interesting, actually, with uh, folks oh, yeah. who sort of leave the love. But um, no, I mean, I, I think that you know th this really gets to. Sorry, I mean, sorry David. Yeah. I just have to jump in there. I, I, the Genovese name didn't ring a bell until you mentioned that. But I've, I've read a work by Genovese, the, the Mind of the Master Class. Uh, I was telling oh. you, David, this is that oh, really yeah. long book that goes deep into like the, uh, the sort of like how like the slave owners felt about Milton and all these sorts of things. Very, very long, long book. Very interesting. And like you said, like he turned into like a sort of Catholic, uh, but he still had like, was doing a Marxist analysis. Very strange. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, he really was a fascinating figure and I did come to know him and he really, in many ways, something of a mentor to me in the late seventies when the journal Marxist perspectives was founded in, I want to say it was 77, 78. It lasted for 10 really solid issues. Um, he created both a sort of editorial board and then this advisory board. And I was honored. I mean, there I was right out of grad school and he, he invited me onto this advisory board. And I was told by people over in Britain where he was spending a year that when he would go around lecturing, he would talk about the journal and say, this is the kind of journal that's going to bring together all these people who might even be as far away as Louisiana from places where socialists gather. I mean, it was... So, and I met him a couple of times, but not at length, really. Not in any way did I come to know him like I came to know the British historians. Well, one thing I liked uh, about this book, just as a, like, as somebody who's read a number, I've read a lot of Hobbsbaum, um, uh -huh. Christopher Hill, uh, particularly, and a little bit of E.P. Thompson. It's good to help me orientate myself and those guys as part of a conversation. That's really useful. But I also think it's really useful to a, like a student, like an undergrad, first getting their bearings on this sort of stuff mm. as a way to like understand what, what exactly you're doing when you're reading Hobbsbawm or, or Christopher Hill. Yeah, I mean, the, of course, as historians, if a, if a, if a, let's say a 19 or a 21-year-old, you know, sort of picks up one of these works, and you try to read, I mean, Hill is brilliant. I mean, it's just brilliant. Mm. And I can, and given your interest in literature, I assume that's yep. a fair assessment of your intellect given your interest in literature christopher hill later in his career and i don't include the, all these later writings he really turned to questions of literature and theater but it didn't mean he necessarily left behind the questions that he was asking before then and another historian who i i have to send you a copy of a book matt um by victor kiernan uh, it was a volume I edited. Maybe I don't. I know I might have given it to Michael, but it's probably lost along the way. Poets, politics, and the people. Okay, okay don't mm. let me, remind me if I don't send it right away. Just send me a note. Okay, poets, politics, and the people. These were there were a couple of other British Marxist historians who I really should have included in the in that first volume, but they came came into the picture for me later because I ran out of contract space on the book. But anyhow, so yeah, so if a night eighteen or twenty one year old picks up one of their their works they're not necessarily going to know the kinds of questions that have framed their thinking that is Hobbsbawm or any of the others and the other thing is since british history is not at all a major subject in this in higher education in this country as it once was they're going to probably trip over themselves trying to know what a lot of the references were and i didn't know british history when i started the work i mean i created a whole library for myself having to, as a reference tool so i would understand more details about the 17th century. And I still, I still can't claim that I can tell, I could ever teach British history. Sorry, can I just say something? Having said that, I remind, I'm reminded of, I spent an evening with Edward Thompson and his wife, Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy was also a historian. When they were visiting professors at Rutgers, forgetting the year, 
and we were out to dinner and I asked Edward how he felt about teaching American students. And he said, oh, I love American students. They're so enthusiastic. But they ask occasionally the most stupid questions. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they'll ask me who the king was at any given time. And he said, I don't know fucking kings who were at any given time. And that's just it. I mean, the history from the bottom up isn't just because he's only interested in working people. It's also by the fact that after a certain time, the royal figure, just to refer back to our prior conversation before we started, the royal figures became really, however much we may build them into the story, they were more figureheads than really, you know, the mm. folks in parliament who were the ruling class in, in government. Um, anyhow, he, he was always fascinated by Americans' curiosity. Um, I just dawned on me. I, I, it just flew into my head when we were talking. But yeah, so if you if you know more about the historians, and thank you for saying students might get, might get a lot out of it, They'll come to see that, first of all, the fact that historians themselves work in a conversation. They work in a conversation not only in terms of past and present, but in the case of these historians, they really did enter into a conversation. They had all been members of the Communist Party in the 30s into the 40s. They were part of the Communist Party Historians Group, which really as a group helped transform the questions we all came to ask about history and also our understanding of how history is made. And when you come to understand the degree to which history itself is like a workshop, you also come to appreciate that the facts do not speak for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, like, um, I mean, in the, like the kind of contemporary debates that they were in, they were really running up against structuralism, you know, Althusser, um, and, and a lot of these ideas, right? I mean, like they're really pushing back on some very popular ideas on the left at that time. Yeah, well, that's Thompson in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, if we go back to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they're pushing against the overwhelming majority of historical scholars in Britain and in the United States who probably would do, you know, at least in social sciences, there was something of a debate with Marx's ghost, as C. Wright Mills talked mm. about it. But in history, uh, uh, historians themselves were had utterly turned their back on any kind of theory, you know, that somehow, and why did they do that? Probably because they knew the strongest intellectual tradition, Marx, and, it, and the streams that come out of Marx, whether it's the Frankfurt mm. School or anything else. Now, there was a price they paid in some ways for having been in the communist party so for example these british historians like i don't talk about this a lot but the british historians themselves underestimated the social and class struggles of the american revolution okay and and a lot of american history because the, the party itself in europe and and moscow had literally written off after the 30s the idea that there what had even been a revolution in the united states okay but it but having said that they in, especially in the case of Thompson, he really was, if you like, intimately attached to American events and developments. His mother actually, I believe, was an American, in fact. Hmm. And um, I often ask myself, if his, if his father had been the American and his mother had been British, what great work we would have gotten <laughs> by him about the American working class. But he influenced a whole generation, so it's okay. Yeah, and you mentioned like the uh, the types of history that was written before the Marxist historians, the concepts they used are like modernization and things like that. Yeah, that's a, and that comes out of social science. So if you look at the if you look at the Cold War American social science, it really was the case that American social scientists thought they were in some kind of intellectual Cold War, okay, 
with European and Soviet intellectuals, okay, especially European intellectuals who themselves were Marxist or in many ways influenced by Marx. And so out of the sort of social science kind of school, the question was, well, if colonialism is coming to an end, right, and you've got all these countries and the terms were pre-modern, they would often talk about for these former colonies who now have to enter, who might now be entering into a modernization, okay, now, it completely leaves out, first of all, the struggles that went into securing some kind of independence. It also left out any question of either imperialism and its impact on those societies, or for that matter, neocolonialism, which was the post-colonial relationships that existed still with Europe and increasingly with the United States. Um, and then you get to hear these British historians, and, they're asked, and you know, modernization, although it implies change over time, is a static and if you like deterministic as any kind of structuralism because there was the presumption of things going through necessary stages okay which uh, it was decidedly an ahistorical understanding okay of the way in which in quotes modern history is made or for that matter any kind of history is made so uh, indeed against that kind of thinking they were fighting in that direction and and similarly, I mean, it, if you think about it, there were traditions in Britain that fed into their work. So, for example, there was this tradition called people's history, which was the idea of writing about working people, even if it wasn't placed in any kind of class struggle. Mm. Or I, I, I don't like to use the word class structure until I've talked about class struggle because I because of Thompson's influence on me. But it is the case that there were people's historians and labor historians and others, many of whom were very much involved with either the Labour Party, L-A-B-O-U-R in Britain, or indeed one of the further left uh, socialist parties, or indeed especially in the 30s, uh, the Communist Party. So there was at least, there were grounds for a Marxist historiography in Britain that were not specifically imported to England, but actually rooted even in the British traditions themselves. Um, could you t talk a little bit about th this term history from the bottom up and and what that means? Yeah, you know, I can never remember because so many years I, I used either term. There were two terms that became popular with my generation of, of historians in the late 60s into the 70s. Um, it actually goes back into probably into the earlier 60s. Um, one term was history from below. Okay, which gave you the idea of, you know, and then this other one, history from the bottom up. And I can't remember, maybe you guys could tell me, which one sounds more American to you? History from below or history from the bottom up? Below sounds more American to me. but Yeah, I bottom up sounds, that sounds <laughs> British. Yeah. And by the way, just a little cute aside, there was a, somebody started using an image for history from the bottom up, which, which was like, like a, like, a, like somebody's bum, actually. Okay. Um, which is an English expression for somebody's arse, which is then right. American for ass, right? I mean, for, for what we say is ass. But it, yeah, so history from the bottom up, okay? For generations, I mean, forever, in fact, even going back to the age of the chroniclers of the Middle Ages, history, the stories were, were tales or histories, eventually, of elites, whether they were royal and aristocratic elites, or military leaders, generals, and others, you know, their exploits on the battlefield, or 
or for that matter, when economic history began, the story of the entrepreneurs, the the makers, as mm -hmm. as Romney would say, not the takers, you know. <laughs> so that so history from we would have said perhaps in contra history from above was the story of those folks, okay? And it was as if everyone else was the the mass, the faceless crowd, okay? And indeed, at those moments when the mass enters into history, all in those, usually they were described as the mob, okay? Mm -hmm. The mob. And that's to distinguish them from the crowd. The British historians appreciated the term mob, but especially George Rude, one of the British historians I got very close to, he said the trick is to find out who's in that so-called mob. And what he discovered was that the assumption was that these were, to use the Marxist expression, lumpen proletariat types, okay, this sort of bottom of the barrel of the mm -hmm. working class. He found out that they were actually often skilled artisans and even what we would sometimes think of as middle class, you know, tra traders and, um, and merchants and, you know, semi-professionals of their day. <clears throat> so the idea was that, that if history from below or the bottom up was a matter of rescuing from the condescension of history, the condescension of historians, the condescension of the elites, the folks who were very much a part of the making of history. And then to take it even further, the British historians in particular, what they were out to show was the degree to which it was these relations of exploitation and oppression, whether we're talking middle ages peasants serfs versus the lords of the manor the landlords or in the more in quotes you know capitalist era working class folks whether they were artisans or or unskilled workers the degree to which their struggles against these relations of exploitation and oppression this their these relations of social production that depended on one group of people working and the others deriving all the benefits, how those struggles shaped the movements of uh, the movement of history. And I want to be clear, it doesn't mean that there were always sort of outright confrontations. Mm -hmm. That's the big problem we all have. We think of, we use the term class struggle and we assume the banners are raised, the barricades are constructed and the battles are underway. No, it's the idea, especially we found this with Hilton, and all the way, and Thompson, arguably, that there were other modes, if, if you like, of struggling against exploitation. And we've come to appreciate the word resistance, okay? And we've come to appreciate the fact that there are rebellions that don't necessarily have, if you like, grand aspirations or ambitions. They just want to reduce, for lack of a better way of putting it, the degree of exploitation and oppression. And then, of course, there are those moments in which revolution erupts and that's a mm -hmm. it's a pretty sophisticated moment in many ways because of you know ideas there was um a better appreciation i think of popular protest right okay and what what the language of popular protest might actually be saying so it involved in some ways a redefinition as well of 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 politics moving it from the corridors of power out into the street to see the degree to which there was a politics of the outdoors. It also involved, for example, asking questions about what social relations of production themselves entail. And I think with Thompson, the others did it, but Thompson was the most explicit about it 
in his attack on the structuralists in the book, The Poverty of Theory, in a theoretical way, and then especially in his work that that what we've come to understand is social relations of production are not simply something that we would have previously called economic or material, but might well involve law and cultural ideas that, as somebody once said, without the police, you're not going to have social relations of exploitation. So how can you understand social relations of production if you don't include questions of law and culture, mm. and, and even for that matter, the ideas that go into rationalizing systems like that anyhow no i mean i, I think this is like a, a um a really important point that you can take from from those historians and also i think you highlight well in the book is that like you know i don't think it's fair to put it on the feet of marx himself but like there's a kind of pop marxism which is that like you know history being defined by class struggle um there in that like you can just put certain inputs in and then like society will erupt into revolution. And, you know, frankly, yeah. we're sitting here in 2022 and, you know, doesn't seem like that that's, that's borne out. And I think, um, you know, what, what you get a lot from, from your book and, and, and from, from their work is like recognizing how to look at history and look at the way that these things actually play out instead of this kind of more like crass deterministic thing that oftentimes gets sort of thrown at, at Marxist as being, you know, yeah. just pure determinists. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now, in the 1930s, these British historians, yeah, they were young, they were probably university age, maybe 18, 19, 20, probably no older in most cases than 23, except for Maurice Dobb, who was their senior, the man who wrote the studies in the development of capitalism, which in some ways frames their thinking about hmm. history, okay, mm -hmm. this transition from feudalism to capitalism, and the fascination that they had for that question, of course, was the question in their minds is, what will the transition from capitalism to socialism look like? And is there, are there things we can do to enhance that transition mm -hmm. or pr help propel it? But in the 30s, there it was, the Great Depression, which struck the United States and Germany probably worst of all, but it, was, it struck Britain harshly as it did all around the world. Okay. On top of that was the rise of these fascist and proto-fascist movements, which emerge in Italy as fascism and take power under Mussolini, and in Germany as Nazism and takes power under Hitler, and there are other things going on like that. And one of the things that they learned, and this was the influence of another senior member of their group, an, an older Marxist, another member of the Communist Party, a, a woman journalist, Donna Tor, is that, and I, I remember one of them saying this very clearly to me is, don't wish for a catastrophe. Mm. Don't assume this economic, an economic catastrophe is that all of a sudden people are going to wake up and realize, you know, the power they have. And they said, catastrophe invites as Mark or somebody paraphrasing Mark, you know, it's socialism or barbarism, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so, and that was one thing. And, and she also taught them, in fact, if you don't mind, I, I, yeah. I marked this because I had a feeling it would, it would we'd get, I should have said to you about the history from the bottom up. She told them, and, and, and she wrote this herself, we should see that the world grasps civilization with a rough, large hand of the laborer, not with the slimmed, sorry, slim gloved fingers of the noble. In other words, she, want, she wanted them to appreciate the working class as a force, okay, at least, and as a potentially mm -hmm. radical force, Okay, they'll already engage themselves in the struggles that labor found itself in, but also the degree to which you don't want to wait, 
you don't want to wait for or wish for a catastrophe to assume that those folks will be radicalized by that catastrophe. And I think what transpired in the 30s was actually good proof of that. And if you think about it in comparative terms, um, however much socialists may wish he had been even more of a social democrat than he was, Roosevelt helped us avoid the barbarism. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's like it's a really important lesson. And also, like, this is why, you know, just making a general pitch to, to our listeners that, you know, studying history is, is really important and understanding where your information comes from is really important. Like, something that's really struck me um, is this point that Leo Panish makes. Um, and we have it on video in, in, in a lecture that I, I really like um, by him. And he's talking about Lenin's theory of imperialism um, and how he sort of brought that up through like angles. And he makes the point, and I didn't know this, that, you know, Lenin and a lot of the, the Marxists in Europe at the time, when they were reading about the United States, they were reading American bourgeois economists who were arguing um, at a period of time when California had not been incorporated into the capitalist market, that America was in like a late stage of capitalism and we needed to expand um, into other countries and practice imperialism in order to like short the American market markets, which, you know, we look at that now and it's just like that you couldn't have been more wrong um, when California with its incredible wealth is not incorporated in the system. And then you realize that this is like not a purposeful mistake, but it's a mistake that has very, very big theoretical consequences, well, yeah, right. you know, for, for, for the movement. And like, this is why the, these kind of studies are like absolutely critical, um, you know, not just like for the furthering of like our intellectual understanding of the world, but like for the political movements too. Yeah, and just as a sidebar, since you brought Leo's name up, Leo was very much a student of and an mm -hmm. heir to the legacy of Ralph Miliband. The, the, in many ways, he was the political scientist who was the closest to that cohort of British Marxist historians um, and was the co-founder with, with um, John Saville of Socialist Register, which of course was the was the volume the annual volume that really w picked up those British Marxist mm -hmm. historians and and others in Britain and elsewhere in the world to begin a kind of socialist humanist tradition. And Leo, of course, became eventually the heir to to Miliband's volume. And Edward, everyone of the group I've talked about was very much attached to and in some ways directly involved in that. You know, I never got to meet Leo in all the years when he was in, when he might have been visiting Britain, I wasn't there. Mm. And I rarely have actually been up in Canada, but we had contact in the year or two before he passed away. He, he was he was a real force. I got to see him one time um, when I was living in, in New York and it was it was a it was a really great experience. He's been a, I've, I've really been diving into in, into Leo over the past couple of years. But, uh -huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> By the way, for what it's worth, my contribution to Socialist Register is published, I think, in the 8586 volume, mm. which is and my piece was the, the use and abuse of history. It's all about Thatcher and Reagan and the new right and how they used and abused the past, which, of course, I talked to Michael a lot about, and it became my book, The Powers of the Past. So I owe a lot to that that cohort. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, which way David wants to go now, but I, I did want to bring up, you know, I, I'm less familiar with Dobb and Hinton, or Hilton, um, the first two writers, but there was a quote that you included 
uh, from Hilton. Um, you were out on some historical uh, field trip, and uh, yeah. a guy says, uh, "May I tell you about the lordship's exploits on horseback?" Uh, yeah. To which Rodney instinctively retorted, "No, but you can tell us if you're up to it about how he exploited his peasants and how they may have resisted it." Yeah. And that's such like a, a succinct, um, you know, the the sort of way we perform history and stage history for for folks, like a succinct sort of response to it. Um, yeah, that that actually was a really fascinating moment. So the book was already published, as I recall, and I was back in England for this period of time in 86, 87. And Rodney had retired from Birmingham University and actually got me a fellowship at Birmingham to, to spend the, the year writing what would be my next book. And we, we went out for, a, you know, it may not have been yet that I was in residence, but we were setting it up on that trip. And Rodney said, we're going to go out for a day. I'm going to take you around the West Midlands. And we, you know, we covered a lot of territory. And we went into this church at the end of the high street in uh, was it Warwick. I want to say Warwick. Yeah. I think that's and, right. Yep. Yeah. And we're in there. And it was all, and this was one of those very medieval churches, very, very medieval churches. And they had these huge, you know, these tombs with, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen these in the movies or in pictures where the person who's buried inside the duke or the duchess the lord the baron whatever they were that their figure is laid out on top and of course if it's a male he's got a sword you know that stretches across his torso and if it's a woman she's you know finely dressed with some kind of headdress included and i forget the names of these these figures maybe i mentioned it in the story but this guy comes over and i, I don't know if i mentioned it in the book but this guy was big the guy who came over to ask us if we call him a sizable fellow. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I call him a sizable fellow. Yeah. I, I, I went and, and Rodney, I mean, it was no weakling, this guy, Rodney by any means, but I thought when he, when this guy said that and, and Rodney came back with what he did and I thought, Oh man, are we going to get, are we going to get smacked around by this guy? That, <laughs> but it was just great. I also remember just admiring his instinctive response to the bullshit rendition of history the guy wanted to present us with and hoping that I can be that attuned. Well, I'm at that age now that Rodney was then. I'll find out if I'm as attuned, but that was a gr really a great moment. I, it was just absolutely wonderful. Um, and I'm glad I, I remember. Sometimes I, you know, these stories occur and you forget to write them down, but that one I knew I would never forget. So. <laughs> yeah. Hilton, um, really, also, yeah, sorry, go you go ahead. No, go. Uh, I, I, I want to move on to Christopher Hill and sort of what's at stake with uh, the memory about the English Revolution. Uh, you know, we have Charles III now. Uh, the uh, interregnum <laughs> between Charles I and Charles II is the is what um, is, uh, is what we're talking about here. And this well, sort of notion that say, was, whoa, hold on, I, you've you've reminded me of what I was thinking when he, okay. he, <laughs> with Charles III. I thought to myself. Is he really asking for the monarchy? Is he asking to be the last monarch? Because <laughs> I, <mean, laughs> I, I don't know if I, I'm, I don't know if I ever, I'm, I don't know if that I mentioned earlier as we were talking. You know, the the English taught the French how to take off the head of a king, and for people who don't know their English history, you know, during the the, the English Revolution, not the one that they used to call the English Revolution, that the elite historians call the English Revolution, not the, you know, the glorious rebellion of the, whatever it is, 1680s. Right. We're talking 1640s when they took off the head of a king and you wouldn't think that somebody truly and then charles ii was nothing to brag about when he when they restored <laughs> the situation charles iii my god 
<laughs> Even when I hear it now, my mind immediately goes back to the 1640s. It's just <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And I mean, the way we understand it, like you said, like Charles the first, um, we understand it as like a Puritan revolution. They got so upset oh, yeah. with Charles the first playing footsie with Catholics yes. that they were upset, but really like, uh, uh, Hill's work brings up the levelers, the ranters, all these different groups that, uh, Cromwell basically were part of that revolutionary coalition. Yeah. This, that, that, what begins as this, if for lack of a better way of putting it, the Cromwellian revolution unleashes and that's why we underestimate quite often what may well be available to us in speaking to our fellow citizens our fellow workers about making change happen mm. or rebellion or resist or whatever else anyhow so the revel you know this rebellion occurs and within the rebellion there emerges this group the levelers mm -hmm. and the levelers take seriously the idea of the rights of freeborn Englishmen, which was something, by the way, that was rooted in, in, a, in, a, in a Norman yoke myth, that somehow the Normans had come over with William the Conqueror and suppressed these, the, the, the rights of the Anglo-Saxons. So these levelers basically made this argument in a beautiful set of speeches, the Putney debates, I guess I think they were, makes it, this argument about equality, at least the idea of political equality, okay, which is an argument in my in our more you know sort of 19th and 20th century terms for a kind of universal suffrage okay that uh, w by no means should people free men be left out of these kinds of political rights and then of doing that of course people started asking other questions and then you get gerard winstanley who was for lack of a better way of putting it the public intellectual of the group called the diggers and they actually said well wait a minute what about property Maybe we ought to redistribute property or at least put property to be land to better use. And they occupied lands and started cultivating it themselves. And that, and Christopher Hill's book, if you, did you ever read um, The World Turned Upside Down? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's just so much fun. It's clearly a book inspired in its own way by the 1960s rebellions on the, you know, of young people in, in, in England and Scotland, the United States and France and elsewhere. And then, then these, this other group, which a lot of historians refuse to believe there even was such another group, the ranters. Mm -hmm. And they came to see it, well, you know, by no means, why does God limit, him, limit himself? You know as they would say to any one particular place in some ways they're very close to what's what is it called pantheism i guess it is the mm -hmm. idea is that god is in everything so it sort of liberated them in politically culturally and sexually as as it was and and definitely rhetorically mm -hmm. and so and by the way it one of the things i discovered in reading that is the degree to which quakers themselves were very much wrapped up in the yeah. revolutions and rebellions of the 17th century which of course leads on to if you'll excuse my move there that tom Paine's father was a quaker mm, and yeah. they well have passed on that kind of thinking and that kind of intellectual tradition to his to his son yeah it's very fascinating there's a document that uh hill references a number of times called gangrena i i think it is oh. and it's basically an official document by i think the, the crown where they're they're sort of auditing all these different groups and the types of crazy things they're saying, but it turns out that's actually really useful to historians. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, to say like that I had forgotten completely, but that's that's great. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I love that. So um, I know David, is there anything you want to jump in here? Um, I mean, <laughs> just a little valor here. My family were Quakers when they came over to this country, um, but no, I mean, I, I think that like 
you know, the this guy who was my mentor, by the way, for my PhD, my dissertation down at LSU, was a Quaker. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? So even though he, he may not have had tremendous sympathy for someone who now wants to write a Marxian dissertation, he was a Quaker and very open-minded and tolerant and would come to my defense if anyone challenged my right wow. to do it. It, it, the 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 American side of it is really fascinating, um, but I mean, uh, you know, I've heard you 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 make this argument a lot in the in the American case, but I've also heard you in interviews, um, you know, mentioning this as as well that like, you know, one of the things that you can really draw um, from the work of like the the British Marxist historians is that there is a language of struggle um, and in in like in English history that the left should certainly be upholding in like contemporary fights today. Well, you know, a couple of things. First, uh, let, let me see if this hel helps me think this through. We really don't teach English history at mm -hmm. all these days, okay? And nor do we understand the degree to which the English, if you like, artisan working class struggles of the 17th, 18th century were very much a part of the artisans and laborer struggles in this country in the period of the 1760s, well, for quite some time, but especially 1760s and 1770s, when you get this kind of revolutionary spirit emerging. I, I, I won't call it a revolution until Thomas Paine writes Common Sense, but <laughs> this kind of rebelliousness, they f believed that they had these Americans, they were told that they were British, that they were English, and therefore they had the rights of freeborn Englishmen. What, by the way, when, when they become revolutionary, is when they realize they're Americans and that they were actually fighting for human rights, not necessarily for English rights. Mm. Okay. But, and if I, if that's what you mean, yeah, there, there is this notion of rights that the English working people believed they, they, they possessed. And when they were denied those rights, they were more than capable of crowd action. Okay. Of, and since they couldn't vote, Okay, they could, but they could attack the homes of, of the authorities, right? They could do, they could, the women knew how to invade marketplaces. This was even characteristic of the French marketplaces in Paris during the, the revolution there and take over the marketplace and set their own prices for things. I mean, th these kind of, some people call it kind of pre-industrial protests or pro, they had a, what was called a moral economy that they believed was worth defending against the imposition of what we would later call the market economy and its price settings and demands. Is that getting sort of what, what you mm -hmm. mean? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I think, I think, you know, it's amazing the degree to which we believe every generation, your generation, every generation does it. We believe we're the, well, maybe not your generation because we're suffering from this 50-year class war on working people that we seem to be losing over and over again. But we often think that we're, that we're the first generation, for example, you know, young people believe that the first generation to have sex, you know, that, <laughs> I mean, to be silly about it. And what we also don't, what we fail to consider, yeah. this is going to get a little anthropological and that I rarely go anthropological, but we forget the degree to which we're raised and we absorb things whether consciously or unconsciously. And I once said to my students when I turned 50, which now is, you know, 22 years ago, I said to my students, you know, I thought about turning 50 and I realized, so that would have been 1999. And I said, if you took 
four of me, five of me, and laid me head to head, we'd be back in the 18, back in the 17th century. And we all know, I don't know if you guys have hit this point in your lives yet, whatever you may think about your mother, your father, you're going to come to the day where you hear yourself sounding like them. Mm. Okay. Now that's exploited in that ad that says, you know, we all become like our parents. No, I'm talking seriously where you almost can hear their voices in your head. So why do we assume that we're not hearing, sorry, this is, doesn't sound as psych psychiatric as it may, I don't mean to sound psychiatric now, but why do we assume we don't have these cu deep cultural memories that are passed from generation to generation that really do give us a kind of, and I don't mean conservatism, I mean quite the contrary, this kind of radical spirit. I mean, we're not that far away from truly radical moments, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. And I don't, you know, I mean, as a consequence, we've got to learn how to tap into these kinds of things. We, and we need to encourage ourselves by reading about them to begin with. No, I mean, I like, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, I just wrote my piece in, in, in Jacobin. I want you on to bring that up. I want, can I be the one to say that yeah. David wrote this really fine piece on, on cowboy rebellion in Texas <laughs> about how, you know, everyone might think about cowboys as right wingers today, and they're probably not at all, but that's the way in which we get, we get these images in our head. But at that moment where, what had been called the enclosures in Scotland and England, which drove mm -hmm. peasants off the land, there was enclosures by these land barons in Texas. And, you know, cowboys needed to move and they needed to move cattle and they needed to sustain themselves. And you put up a fence, you put up a fence and you're lit. <laughs> okay, so now you can, you want to say more? I mean, I, it was a great piece. Everyone should go online, type in. Tell them what the title of it is. Uh, when, when, when Texas Cowboys fought private property. There um, you go. Right. No, I mean, well, I mean, thank you so much for the kind words. But I mean, I was, I've been very, very inspired by, by, you know, speaking with you and reading your work. And, you know, for me, it was one of those things I, I read it in a book that you suggested that I read called Grassroots Socialism, which is a oh, history yeah. of like, you know, left populist and, and early socialist movements in Texas and Louisiana and uh, Oklahoma. And. Um, it opens up with just it's only a couple sentences just on this moment in, in Texas history. And, and I was and I had learned it in high school, but, you know, just like a footnote kind of mm -hmm. thing. And I went up looking at, you know, to read more about it. And almost everyone who's doing this, mainly like hobbyists, like Texas blogs and things like this. The way that story is always portrayed is fascinating. And it shows like the cultural, like the way that we look back at history from our own time, where it's like, this is how law and order came to Texas, right? Because the, <laughs> the Rangers came down and put down this rebellion. And I found that to just be an absurd way to look at it because you were much more likely to be related to a fence cutter than you were to be to one of those Texas Rangers who was trying That's to right. blow up the guys on the fence. And I <laughs> right. think, you know, in a state like this, that we're really fighting for like the way that we tell our history, it's really critical. Um, not just in defense of like of, of our history, but also defense of like how we understand ourselves um, as as people and parts of, of these communities to say, you know, actually, like we have a very radical tradition and there's been a point actually to obscure that. And I think that it empowers us a lot that, you know, these ideas, they're not some kind of foreign importation or like other people trying to come and change these places, but rather like the continuation of the spirit of people who are fighting back against these things from the very beginning of the history. Yeah. I, you know, if you told, if you told friends and family that populism and socialism were powerful forces in the South, that, what was called the Southwest of Louisiana, mm -hmm. Texas, Oklahoma, come North, include Arkansas, Missouri. Okay. Kansas. I mean, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank 
his book, his book whatever was fault, faulty about the original book, What's the Matter with mm -hmm. Kansas, was driven by his knowledge of the fact that Kansas had been a populist yeah. state. <laughs> I mean, clearly a populist state. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I love talking to my students as Wisconsin became more and more a Scott Walker kind of state mm -hmm. over these past, you know, more, Jesus, more than a decade now. And before that, the Republicans were great gaining in strength. Not, we were always generally a Republican kind of state, but once upon a time, they were progressive Republicans, not reactionary Republicans. How many people in Wisconsin know that for most, most of the 20th century, the mayor of Milwaukee was a socialist? Mm -hmm. Okay. How many know that out in the western part of the state, the rural part of the state, that this was the, this was basically pro where progressivism took root, that this was the state that led the way in progressivism and also took the way in, in, in many ways, social democracy as an idea. But of course, it seems so long ago, right? Um, although when I came to the state, I, I met that social, the last of the <laughs> socialist mayors, and he was great, absolutely fabulous. And like, I mean, um, I mean, I'm happy to broaden this out a bit and, and, and talk about this because like, you know, I think on the left right now in the US, at least like there is a real tendency when it comes to history um, to tell a very like it's like a debunking version of history where it's like, oh, you think, you know, the American Revolution was interesting. The American uh. Revolution was reactionary or the Civil War, which you might even think was good. They weren't doing it for the right reasons, which, you know, I think it's I, I don't think it's worthwhile to say we're, you know, putting our heads in the sand, not recognizing atrocities in American history. Um, but there's a very real trend, I think. Um, to sort of look at sort of debunking the myths and, and, and the legends without replacing it um, with the stories of, of the people and, and the struggles that have happened in this country's history. And I think that's I think that's a really negative thing for trying to build a movement in the long term. Yeah. You know, as you say that, I can tell you that you mentioned the Civil War. Um, Matt Carp, I, I haven't yeah. seen much of Matt Carp. I hope he's OK. I mean, no, he's doing he's doing great. OK. <laughs> yeah. OK, because really, I mean, I, I give my interest in the whole slave question to begin with, and my ever-growing affection for Lincoln, okay, mm -hmm. and my sense of the ways in which slave rebellion and slave exodus helped drive the Union forces. You know, they drove to the Union forces, the Union forces absorbed them, and Lincoln himself literally created a different kind of army when he Sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. Well, it's. I mean, I. I'm hoping maybe Mart's, Matt's got some other project, but I hope he's writing the book that will that will put together the arguments he was making about the Civil War as truly a revolutionary moment in American history. I mean, many historians will grant that it's like a it's a, that it's a second revolution because of the fact slavery came to an end. But he can actually talk about it as a revolution. Okay. Mm -hmm. And all this stuff, like this is how history can be extremely deceptive if it's not guarded against like by, by the project of the British Marxist historians, because you basically naturalize like Columbus Day just happened. And this idea that, well, nobody criticized Columbus at his own time. Don't use it. Well, actually, no. If you look at there's documentary evidence that the, his sort of uh, 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 use of violence was <laughs> a headache for the Spanish monarchy. And yes. so but if you right. don't include that, then you act like everyone, humanity itself condoned that sort of thing and it's the exact same thing as you know with the the wire cutting wars it's like the, the, we see a lot of these uh i think apologists for capitalism particularly say like well how many deaths are you going to uh, need to install socialism because uh capitalism was achieved as if it was achieved without 
you know, th- uh, protest or violence or threat of violence. But when we all know that I- the exact opposite is the case, but well, we don't all know that we need to, you know, convey to people that that's, that's what's happening. Yeah, that, yeah, that's good. I, by the way, and that, but that reminded me, I remember I was talking that Rodney Hilton, we, he mm-hmm. had invited us over for dinner. We, this is during the year we were living in, in England. Coincidentally, my wife herself was an undergraduate at Birmingham university where, where Rodney Hilton was a professor and where I had got this visiting fellowship on his behalf, you know, because of his efforts. We were standing in his study, okay, alone. I remember it was a rainy day, and we were talking about, I said to him, what if, what if we on the left don't quite grasp how close we are to bringing off socialism? What if it's not as far away? And, and he said, he said, I think I know what you're saying, but be more, be more illustrative. I said, well, okay. I mean, you, we live here in Britain. Okay. It's uh, however much there are still Tories, you know, in the British and in, that would have been in the mid eighties and the Tories were very much in, in power. It still was the case that they had national health insurance. They had a whole series of things that made life radically better for working people. And I said, what if we on the left, and I meant when I say the left, I didn't mean the Labor Party types. I mean those of us who, were, who, were, who really were so- socialists. Um, what if we're not realizing the degree to which we, we can speak to this as socialism and, and build upon it? It was just something, you know, and he said, he actually shocked me. He said, I actually agree with you. Boom. Mm. And, I've always, and I always thought about that. But then, of course, this Reagan-Thatcher experience that began... Around, it began before 1980, honestly, but really just imposed itself powerfully in the 80s. We're now, 50, we're now 40 to 50 years later, and it's hard even to imagine that for most people. And le- except Bernie Sanders, I'm not going to give him sainthood, but Bernie Sanders, to go back to something you were saying, David, Bernie Sanders pointed a finger at the billionaires. Mm-hmm. When's the last time? I'll, and you're going to be shocked when I tell you this. The last person to do that kind of rhetoric, you're going to laugh, was Harry Truman in the 1948 wow. election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go into the whole story, but he did. He spoke just like that in the 48 election. Whether he was driven to, by Wallace's campaign or not, doesn't matter. He spoke like that. Hmm. The, and now Bernie is doing everything in his power to promote this worker working class insurgency we're seeing the, the beginnings of. I wish he had tied those together so that instead of just the, the populist pointing the finger at the billionaires, he had made it clear that the billionaires are the reason that w- the working class is enduring what it's enduring. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's like, I just, those are the kind of things that, are, that, are, because yeah, it was close, but it was, but it was like inequality, you know, it's like, they they have good stuff. They have enough, you, don't. you know, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, is, like yeah, have enough, yeah. We should be able to tax them. What about, yeah. I mean, I, I know that Bernie at times did exactly what I just said, but I, I wished when he took mm-hmm. the stage, he made it explicit because mm-hmm. young people were waiting to hear that kind of thing. And I can tell you, a hell of a lot of working class people were waiting to Definitely. hear that kind of thing. And I, I, to just today, you know, I keep thinking about the fact that the Democrats may, may lose badly mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. We may break even and win. Who knows? Um, but it is the case that we ask ourselves, why is it that 
the working class has moved the white working class has moved well latino working class possibly too is moving towards the republicans i mean these people are reactionaries and i may not have wanted to use the word back when michael was alive but fascists okay it's really getting that bad and you don't have to agree with me the point is that they were so so antagonized and alienated by the democratic party turning its back on the working mm -hmm. class for so many years right that bernie was just like like that to, was tapping into this deep memory i was talking about before when he spoke and you one could ask themselves even now well why is it that they haven't sort of woken up you know to the reality well they don't have to wake up they know damn well yeah. they're being exploited but but what are the democrats talking to them about yeah, no, it's 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 been really frustrating to watch the campaigns here in Texas where people were, you know, very excited about the fact that a lot of folks have moved here um, and mm. like don't want to undo the work um, that like Democratic Party failure has done in places that reliably voted Democratic for generations now. Yeah. Um, you know, and instead of like showing up to those communities, like one materially, but honestly, just like just like politically in the sense of like putting up a ad or a billboard or somebody on the street out there um yeah it's 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 very scary honestly when you see what the right wing is is able to do in in, in that failure it's a very dangerous thing to have uh, the democratic party as it's yeah. currently constituted as like the stewards between us and like the full-on barbarism um, Did, have either of you seen the movie What's it called? Was it called Hell in High Water or something like that? Yeah that's um, a great no, that's one of my favorite movies fine. actually yeah it's one of my favorites that is the most that has got to be the film it's a class war film yeah okay? and there's that moment i can since you've seen it you yeah. know there's that moment where he's driving and i i don't know in coming out of a town or into town there's a billboard there's this billboard having to do with i can't remember the billboard now all of a sudden i'm blanking but it there are so many signals in that film mm -hmm. this that film was about the kind of stuff we're talking about that alienation and I know that's an old fashioned term, but I do mean alienation turning off to the point where they were, they were willing to vote. Don't, it's not a matter of voting against your interest. You don't know who the hell's representing your interest. You just want to punch somebody. Yeah. And we're now at the point, we're now at the point where, where the anger has been just sustained for so long that I'm not calling for, I don't want a catastrophe to do it. We, bl we blew our cata catastrophic moment, if, if ever, in 2008, 9, and 10, okay? And it's just striking that the Democrats, they just don't want it. To, they're afraid of working people. That's all I can say. They're afraid of them. It's truly, and, like, and rebuilding after that level of the Democratic Party won, um, you know, being afraid of, of working people, which I think is true, um, and then trying to work with people like, you know, like, there's been a big push to, you know, build stronger connections with like the union movement here and the left. And I think that's yeah. exactly what we need to be doing, but it's, it's also difficult because you're inheriting, um, a, a lot of distrust that like, even though the left ourselves aren't the ones who were, you know, we're not like yeah. in the democratic party or whatever, like you still have yeah. to sort of overcome, like people have been coming around and promising folks a lot of good stuff. Um, and having no intention delivering for a very long time. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I'm overcoming with my tears right now. <laughs> but it's 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 really unfortunate. It's like that's why we needed to have. I think that's why you know having a little bit more rootedness and showing up for people um, in those like struggles that might not necessarily be like radical revolutionary struggles, but just basic things like 
um, when Exxon is, you know, locking out union workers in Beaumont, uh, Texas, you know, like sh- having us have a presence there, I think is really important. Yes, um, absolutely. To do. A- absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I think we, we got to wrap up, but I did want to ask you, uh, oh yeah, sorry. If Matt, I, well, there's just one thing before yeah. you give your wrap up thing, but I did really I like it. You guys want to have me back anytime? Just yeah, well, we should definitely do this again. We'll do it again soon. Yeah, Um, I I I liked the bit where uh, those guys. I'm not sure which one of them uh, you were talking to, but told you to uh, stop stop writing about us and start writing about American history (laughs) Uh, because you know we know you first through your American history, so it's funny to see you know hear the young Harvey get uh, scolded by these guys. Yeah, I was I was young, and I can tell you in. At, at various times, I think every one of them told me that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the first one who did was, I, it might have been Hilton, might have been Hilton, and then maybe Thompson, and maybe Christopher Hill might have been more gentle when he, when he told me, okay? Um, <laughs> but I will tell you, this is, this is funny in that sense, I now understand. When I was living in England that year, 86, 87, the, one of the greatest ever American labor historians, David Montgomery. Does that name ring a bell with you guys? Mm-hmm. It was just an outstanding labor historian who was really very close to, um, to Thompson. In fact, I have to say something about David Montgomery, really picking up on Thompson and others. He did a book, I think it's called Workers' Control in America. And it wasn't about, you know, an image of the possibility of workers' control. His argument was that he had worked in a steel factory in Pittsburgh, I think before the PhD, and he was an organizer. And he said he saw in the solidarities created in the workplace among workers Mm. that the makings of workers' control and possibly on a grander scale, you know, social democracy and socialism were already present in the experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you get a chance, read that book, Workers' Control in America. It's it's pretty limited number of pages that sounds great okay and so anyhow so i first met david montgomery at ep thompson's home in worcester england Hmm. and we later became friends and i i sometimes wondered if he made it this is funny i'm I'm inventing a story but i could it'd be great to sort of spin it out which i'm going to do now so Edward said, yeah, I got to get Harvey to pay more attention to his own history. He invites me over to spend the afternoon with him and David Montgomery. And as a consequence, I get yeah. to David Montgomery. Wow. So you can see where I'm going with that. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, well, on last question, because um, it's something I want to ask. And we've touched on it a little bit in, in here. But like one thing that I do really like about um, the book is, um, the the presence of like these outside influences, like things that aren't just like history on on people's on, on people's history. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about how things like you know you mentioned before, like poetry and literature, um, are are very important things for historians to get into. And if you don't mind me asking on a personal level, if there's any outside influences that you know you utilize from time to time that sort of inspire you when uh, you're doing oh, work that, like that's this, a, that is a boy. We could be here for another stretch <laughs> because I will confess that I'm not. Let me start off by saying Victor Kiernan, whose name I mentioned before, whose volume I put together three volumes of his articles into different books. And I just remember being blown away by his encyclopedic knowledge and ability to write. Well, when I was doing Poets, Politics, and the People, and I was putting it together for him, I wrote him a letter and I confessed to him that I rarely, it it had been a long time since I read literature and fiction. Mm -hmm. And that I, but I did so 
when I was working on a period of history, whether it was British, American, or for that matter, when I was very deeply involved in Latin American studies, and I could read Spanish very fluently. And he, and he said to me, you know, Har he wrote back to me. I have, again, a letter here. He said, you know, Harvey, I can understand not reading philosophy, not to upset either one of you guys. Okay? <laughs> I can understand not reading philosophy because everything a philosoph that philosophers have written of consequence can be reduced to half a page. And that was probably what Marx wrote. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> but a historian without literature is like a man without a shadow. Hmm. And I'll tell you, that has stuck with me, and I'm, it haunts me, in fact. I can't tell you why, but, but there are works that matter to me a great mm -hmm. deal. And I can tell you, that it may seem very remote to say this, but the book that I will always cherish is by an Englishman, uh, T.H. White, it's The Once and Future King, which I know sounds utterly removed from all of this. But the book is really, it's not simply the story of King Arthur, and, and the Knights of the Round Table and Guinevere and all. It's not, it is all of that, which makes it rather exciting to read. But it's also about the question of justice. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things that just has always stuck with me. The other thing is, is that, you know, there are poets that I've come to discover in good part because of E.P. Thompson, because Thompson wanted to be a poet. Hmm. And there was a there was an, an older historian, not as old as Edward, but older than I am, who said who wrote one time. I think it's in the it's in the book somewhere that the original meaning of poet was was intimately tied to the idea of the chronicler and the historian. And in his own way, Edward continued to be a poet, even though he became a historian. And in that sense, I want you to know that if you look at his famous quote, okay, can I just can I mm -hmm. am I taking too much time? No, no, it's perfect. He, he writes this at the, in the preface, I think it is, of the making of the English working class, one of the greatest works ever in history. I am seeking to rescue the poor stockinger, the Luddite cropper, the obsolete handloom weaver. These are in quotes much of this. The utopian artisan, and even the deluded follower of Joanna Southcutt, who was a mystic, from the enormous condescension of posterity. Their crafts and traditions may have been backward-looking, their communitarian ideals may have been fantasies. Their insurrectionary conspiracies may have been foolhardy, but they lived through these times of acute social disturbance and we did not. Their aspirations were valid in terms of their own experience. And if they were casualties of history, they remain condemned in their own lives as casualties. What I used to, I used to do this little experiment. If I had my students read any of these, these works, and I, as I said, I wasn't teaching British history, I was teaching historical perspectives. I would ask him to take that, and because it, it, it was strange to them, and put it into poetic verse to see if it would help them understand it. And it, they actually said, you know, Marx wanted to be a poet as well. For, mm -hmm. for, you know what I'm very if bad poems, though, for being said? Yeah, His poetry is very bad. <laughs> like, he was in love, man. He was a young man. He was in love. But there are poets that I think are outstanding. And I would tell any American leftist, if they want, however corny it's going to seem, read the poetry of Langston Hughes. Mm. Okay. And if you guys haven't done it, read Let America Be America Again. It's far more radical and progressive and class struggle into intimate with the class struggle idea than almost any poem i can i can think of in american history okay mm -hmm. and i would also tell people however much it seems remote i think whitman mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's incredible, Whitman. And read his prose as well. Whitman wanted to be Thomas Paine, and he was going to do it through poetry. Interesting. Oh man, well that that's that that's perfect, Harvey. I mean, uh, it's always such a joy having you on. Let's do it again uh, very soon, um, folks. Grab uh, the British uh, Marxist historians uh, online. You can get it at bookshop or get it from Red Emma's. Um, really, uh, thank you so much, Harvey, for joining us today. Thank you. And I'm going to say one last thing in closing. Yeah, I know you guys because of Michael, as you as we all know. And I always used to say to Michael, I would turn to him. I think I said it to you. In, I said it in public sometimes on the show. I said where the hell did you find these guys? These guys are incredible, okay? <laughs> and I meant you two guys. I thought, you know, your economic reports that you used to do were just brilliant. And I just was always, I marveled at Matt's, first of all, his technical expertise, but also his 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 affection for literature was, was pretty evident. I, I, I just, I knew when I arrived in the studio with you guys, it was going to be a great night. I always knew <laughs> that. And, and I'm really glad you guys have stuck together. It's great to see you. Yeah, we have to figure out a way to have this uh, all in the same room uh, doing one of these uh, in the Yes, future. please. Down in Texas, right? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you around. Uh, well, thanks so much, Harvey. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Hope to see you again soon.
the KC Morning Show.